0: i going to ask you if you have a Bible with you this morning to go to Matthew chapter 12, if you would. There's some weekends where um, worship service could, the music component, could just keep going on and on for me. I'd be good with that. Today would be one of those. It just uh, ignites your soul when you can declare truth about who God is. We're going to do that through His Word this morning in Matthew 12. So whether you have it electronically or hard copy or watching from home, it would be a good time to turn to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to address another hard question this morning. This is the, actually the last one in the hard question series because we're getting ready to launch into a new fall series called E2E. I'll explain that in just a minute. Um, the hard question this morning is, what is the unpardonable sin? And the way the question actually was phrased that came to me was, what is the unpardonable sin? I'm afraid that I've committed it. And a lot of people live in fear that they've committed the unforgivable sin and maybe they're carrying around baggage or anxiety today, even perhaps in this auditorium, or someone watching from home thinking, I think I did that. Well, I'm gonna address that issue this morning so you understand what Jesus was talking about. I received a note from someone this last week in regards to uh, John chapter one, where we were at last week. Uh, You might remember that, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Last week we examined the Trinity, And we talked about Jesus' placement within the Trinity. And I received notes back from individuals, first of all, who said, don't stop giving us the hard stuff. That was really hard, but it was good hard. I agree, we need to dig into the hard things. Uh, But then I received notes from individuals who said, but what about the Holy Spirit? You didn't address the Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit fit into this? And I intentionally didn't get into that last week because it comes out today And it's going to come out in the new series that we're launching, E2E. And that series is called Eternity to Eternity, E2E for short. And so you'll see advertisements around promoting that. The concept is we're going to look at the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And we're going to see how a biblical worldview fits together and shapes our thinking. So this morning what we're going to do as we look at the Holy Spirit, we're going to be reaching back To a statement that was made by Jesus in the midst of a a story that Dr. Matthew or Dr. Luke tells and and Mark also tells in regards to Jesus making a statement about the unforgivable sin and its relationship to the Holy Spirit. So if you've been waiting to hear more about the Spirit, it's going to come out today, but it's also going to come out in great detail in E2E. We'll expand on that a little bit more next week. So I'm going to ask you to do this with me right now. If you would, wherever you're at, just uh, stop bow your head, let's pray together, and ask God that he would teach us through this. And we'll set aside our own prejudices when it comes to this passage. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. And we recognize it just by declaring his name. We're ushered into the throne room, and we find ourselves in your presence And as humbling and as awesome as that is, we come before you with a request that we would be able to set aside, Father, the predisposed, preconceived ideas we have about you and your word and especially this issue of the unforgivable sin, But that we would be able to hear it straight on from you in the way that you intended for us to understand it, and that will only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. So our request is that you would teach us and you would guide us and and allow us to see where we have freedom and allow us to see where we have responsibility. Translate that, Father, into boldness on our behalf towards your kingdom. I pray, Father, that you would give us understanding now. In the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Many have heard that there's an unpardonable sin and that it's an unforgivable thing, and it's used a lot in pop culture. You see it, Hollywood has made use of it. People quote unforgivable sins thinking that they understand what it is, and and many live with an anxiety thinking it's something that they've done that might be unforgivable, I'm here to tell you this morning that you'll be able to use this as a tool in your life to speak into the lives of friends and family members. Maybe even later today, you'll be able to speak into someone's life who might have a misunderstanding on this. Just right up front, so we hit it head on, Jesus clearly states what the unforgivable sin is, and he calls it blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that's where the confusion comes in. People don't understand what that is. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 12, verse 31. I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And obviously, you see right away, you're dealing with something that is an eternal sin. In other words, it's going to echo into eternity. And that's why there's considerable misperception over this. Some think and have come to the conclusion that the unforgivable sin is murder because there's so much spoken against murder in the Old Testament. Some have arrived at the conclusion that the unforgivable sin is adultery because it's the breach of a relationship between two people in the midst of a trust. And as serious as those are and other sins as well, they don't fit the description whatsoever. They don't fit the biblical description mandate for what the unforgivable sin is. For example, King David, we're told, is guilty of both murder and adultery, and yet he's forgiven. And as important as that is, even more importantly, as Jesus is being murdered on the cross, he prays for those who are murdering him. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So those obviously can't fit the description. And it's very clear that Jesus says the unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is that? Well, first understand that blasphemy is a verbal sin. It's something that you commit with your mouth. And the mouth is only a muscle. And the muscle is only doing something that the brain commands it to do. So we speak out of the abundance of our mind or out of the abundance of our heart. Some of you are probably familiar with this verse Matthew 12, 34, only two verses after what we're going to look at this morning. Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, what's in there, what's in there is going to leak out. Jesus said it's inevitable. It's what makes you up that causes your mouth muscle to function. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this particular sin, he says, is actually an echo of someone's heart. It's echoing what's inside of your convictions and your thoughts. So it has to do with acting and speaking against the work of the Holy Spirit to the degree that the Holy Spirit is intentionally rejected or scorned, which brings us to this story in Matthew chapter 12. And Mark chapter 3, and and Luke also records the story. Mark gives us some details that Matthew doesn't give us. Mark tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees, they came down from Jerusalem to this environment that you're about to see to actually be part of this conversation. They may have even brought this man with them to Jesus. We're not entirely sure. Go with me to verse 22. We're told then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him. So that the mute man spoke and saw. So, the demon possession in the case of this guy's life surfaces in a physical ailment. He's both blind and he's mute. And that he heals this man is not unique. And hear me on that when I say that. Jesus has healed hundreds of people by this point. That's why I say it's not unique. He's healed people who are deaf and who can't see and who are mute. He's healed people who are sick. And so this is not unique in that setting. He's healed hundreds by this point. Actually, if you look at the book of Luke, we're told there's a setting in which there's thousands of people that are brought to Jesus, and he healed all that were brought to him. People with broken arms and damaged teeth and eyesight and all kinds of things that you can imagine that plague humanity are brought before Jesus and he healed them but this particular guy he's got something more going on here and in this setting in one broad stroke Jesus demonstration his dominion he demonstrates his dominion over the unseen spiritual world i have relatives who were born without the ability to speak they're mute And in my interactions with them as children, they had learned sign language, they could communicate, but they had not a voice, and other members of that same family, distant cousins, who also were deaf. So one was deaf and mute, not blind, but a physical ailment. Now, they weren't demon-possessed, they were believers in Jesus, but this particular individual we're told is demon-possessed. And Jesus is now demonstrating dominion over this unseen spiritual world and he's making a direct link with his authority in the physical realm and his authority is on display. Now all these people who are following Jesus, they've seen his authority over the weather and over animals and over fish and over wine and over trees and over eyesight and over speech. So the people in the first century who got to be around Jesus, they've come face to face with the only one in humanity, who can command, and it's done. And that's a match for what we talked about last week in Colossians chapter 1. Look with me again just to remind you in verse 16. It says this about Jesus. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In other words, he's got authority over all authority. He commands and it responds. And that's why you find the disciples and others like them in the first century absolutely stunned when they see it on display, to the degree that you see even in one of the stories that when Jesus calms the water, they say, who is this that can calm the sea and silence the water and has such authority over the elements? Yet, in those exact same settings, you find many others who are undecided about Jesus, specifically about the source of His astounding power because Jesus didn't come as a conqueror and He didn't come as a political leader. Many people who surrounded Him struggled to see Him as Messiah because He didn't come with swords and He didn't come with horses and He didn't come with torches. So for the national leader's part, they're not even pretending to be skeptical. They're just downright hostile towards Jesus there's no way that they can believe that he's the Messiah. They're not even at that place where they're going to pretend, and it's approximately one year before they're going to crucify him. Yet at this point, if you look in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, you find out they're already plotting Jesus' death. It says this in verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, this is before the blind man is brought to him. Back to the story, though. In verse 22, everyone's watching. We're told there's a huge crowd there. The scribes and the Pharisees are there. So Jesus has all these eyewitnesses standing in front of him, and before them is this indisputable evidence of this man who's demon possessed no more. And he's no longer blind and he's no longer mute. And it seems that this particular healing is for the benefit of the Pharisees, maybe for the scribes also, because here's what it's going to do. It's going to force a public decision. Where do you land on the issue of Jesus? There's a reason why this has left them so astounded, and I'll get into it in just a second. Watch verse 23. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, that sentence really depends a lot on where you put the emphasis. You could say it this way, this man can't be the son of David, can he? And the emphasis would be completely different. But if you read it this way, this man can't be the son of David, can he? You understand some more of what's going on in the Greek language. There's a particular Greek word in your notes this morning. You're going to see it on the screen. And it reflects their amazement. The actual word amazement is existomai, and it's speaking of someone who's been put out of their mind. They're beside themselves, totally astounded. The Greek language actually says it's like being knocked senseless. What's going on here if they've seen Jesus already heal hundreds of times? This. It was widely held in the first century that in order to cast a demon out of someone, You had to engage that individual in conversation. How do you engage someone in conversation who's mute? You can't even speak to them. And so the Pharisees and the scribes widely taught and held in the synagogues that people who were mute, they were helpless when it came to demon possession. They could not be healed. It wasn't even possible. And so we have Jesus casting out a demon out of someone who's mute. Now, you've seen other places, perhaps, if you've read the Bible, where Jesus engages demons in conversation and says to individuals who are demon possessed, What is your name? One particular case that's really famous, they respond back, Our name is Legion, for we are many, many demons inside the individual. But this guy can't respond, he's mute. So, there's something going on here beyond what we can sense in just reading the story in Matthew or in Mark or in Luke. It is so unusual. It's overwhelming, as though Jesus has put this massive exclamation point on the world of the unseen. And it's left the crowd astounded and they don't know what to do with it. So, they respond, This cannot be the son of David, can it? In other words, they're already there mentally. Now, the son of David, that title is reserved for someone who's royalty. It was to be given to the individual who would be in the line of David, king of Israel. So with this royal name, they're ascribing something to Jesus by saying, he's in the line of David. This has to be the son of David. It might seem that they are quite established in their thinking at this point like they've arrived at a conclusion because of the extraordinary circumstances of this event, the very question that they're asking at this moment reveals something about them. They see this as a messianic sign. Let me just help you with a little bit thinking through that setting, what they're going through in this moment. Many of you know the book of Revelation. Many of you spend some time reading it. In case you haven't, there's an episode in the book of Revelation toward the last days on planet Earth when something remarkable happens that catches the attention of the entire world. Apparently, the entire world media will make it known because we're told in the Bible that everybody around the planet will become aware of this instance. In the book of Revelation, we're told at the very end of the last days, near the very end of the tribulation some witnesses will appear in the city of Jerusalem. And these witnesses, we're told, at least it looks like in the Bible, is a reappearance of at least Elijah and maybe Moses. Not entirely sure. But these individuals cannot be killed, and they're in the city of Jerusalem in the last days, and they witness day and night. Now, I want you to picture going home today And flipping on the news and seeing this worldwide image of two old dudes in long flowing robes with long white beards standing in the city of Jerusalem, proclaiming the truth of Jesus to the world, would that not freak you out a little bit? Would that not cause you to say, wait a minute, I remember reading about this. This this is in the book of Revelation. I think those might be the two guys. Would that not cause you to step back and get a little goosebumps down the back of your neck saying, What's going on? When these individuals encounter Jesus healing a blind man who's mute also and demon possessed, they immediately draw together the pictures and they're understanding something's going on here. This is a big deal. But watch the Pharisees' reaction to this in verse 24. Now, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So the scribes, some are on the outskirts of the crowd, some are in the crowd. They've heard what Jesus did. If they could actually see it themselves, and they're right up front. When they see and they hear about this healing, and they hear the people begin to ask the question, it really ticks them off. They're aggravated. And they're provoked because the crowd is especially beginning to think he's the Messiah. And that, the crowd marvels, drives the Pharisees crazy to this place of frenzied panic, and they've got to do something with it. And if you've been at New Hope for any length of time, you've heard me use the term stupid smart, and you've heard me use the term crazy smart. I'm going to link the two thoughts together for you right now in the midst of this story. Because we, first of all, have stupid smart on display. The Pharisees and the scribes are really intelligent individuals. They're highly schooled. They've been to the best schools of theology. They know things inside and out, yet they react with stupidity. It's not that they're dumb and uninformed. They're reacting stupidly. And they're accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebul. Personal opinion will make you think stupid thoughts. You heard me intentionally ask God to help us to set aside our prejudices when we come to a passage like this, because we can arrive at personal opinion without actually going to the source, and sometimes we allow personal opinion to trump over the top of what God actually declares in His Word personal opinion can cause you to think stupid thoughts. The Pharisees cannot tolerate the thought that this one, Jesus, who's denouncing them, could be the deliverer. He has to be a counterfeit. And so they make this statement in verse 24, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul. Who is Beelzebul? He's the ruler of the demons. It's another name for Satan. It originates in Canaanite lore in in very ancient days, Beelzebul is not a term of endearment. It's it's a term of disparagement. So make no mistake, they're saying he's the opposite of the Messiah. They're calling Jesus the Antichrist. You're not the Messiah. You're the anti-Messiah. You serve Satan. And that's their only option. That's the only thing that they can say, Because even his enemies recognize the extraordinary nature of what has just happened. A blind man who could not speak and was demon-possessed now can see and now he can speak because they understand that biblically there's only two sources of supernatural authority, God and Satan. It says that in your notes, and I want to qualify that for just a moment in point number five. God is the source of all authority. If you agree with that, say amen. Okay. God is the source. Everything originates. But the authority was granted to Satan also. But biblically, we've got two sources of authority opposing each other, God and Satan. And because they have rejected Jesus as the one, they're forced to conclude, well, he's of Satan then. And that's stupid smart. Now let me contrast that for you with scary smart because scary smart goes on display and Matthew tells us you can see it right from the very beginning. Watch with me in verse 25. And knowing their thoughts. See, that's scary smart right there. It's really hard to win an argument with someone who can read your mind, right? So Jesus knowing their thoughts and knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? See, the charge is absolutely ludicrous in the highest degree. It's obvious that anything that's divided against itself is going to self-destruct. No government, no household can function when it's divided. So Jesus is just stating the obvious. It cannot stand. So the principle is really clear. If Satan is casting out Satan, how is his realm going to endure? He's divided against himself. So there's many negative attributes about Satan. We understand that. He's, he's the father of lies. He is the originator of hatred. The Bible says that where there's chaos, there's Satan. Where there's trauma, there's Satan. He's active in all of those things. So just as God is the Lord of order and structure, Satan is the one who pursues chaos. He he likes it. But even though those things are true, Satan is a highly intelligent created being. And Jesus' scary smart statement is, he's not going to do that to himself. He will not internally destroy his own agenda. Therefore, it's preposterous to say that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan. So Scary Smart keeps on speaking, and he says, verse 27, if I by beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. And although I wasn't in that setting, I can picture very clearly that at this moment there's probably the sound of crickets in the background. If I'm casting them out by Beelzebul, who do your sons cast them out by? And what Jesus has done is he's just revealed the wickedness of the human heart. When the human heart comes to the things of God, prejudiced or predisposed, that their opinion is better than what God states is truth. These individuals, the scribes and Pharisees, have arrived at opinion with the height of prejudice And Jesus is calling them out on it. See, in the Old Testament, to speak of someone as the son of a Pharisee or a rabbi or a scribe was to refer to their disciples. Jesus is not talking about their biological sons, whom they raised in their household. He's talking about their disciples, those whom they've trained, whom they've sent out, some of whom attempt to cast out demons, And so we have these individuals whom Jesus is calling out, the sons of the Pharisees who cast out demons, and Josephus reports that they used exotic incantations, and they used cult formulas, and Jesus spoke about those individuals in Matthew when He said, there's a day coming in the judgment day when people who are going to stand before Me are going to say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in Your name? That's these kind of individuals who said, we did the right incantations, we used the right formula. And let me just rabbit trail with you for just a second. I don't think it's a rabbit trail. When I tell you it's a rabbit trail, but nonetheless, indulge me. Um, Dr. Luke writes in the book of Acts, I think it's like Acts 17, about Sevia. And Sevilla is a, a priest, a chief priest. And he's got sons, if you will, disciples who follow after him. And he sends them out to cast out demons. And they're trying to do what they do, and they're actually so aware of what Paul has been doing in the way of casting out demons that they use Paul's name in the midst of their incantation. And they're saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches that you come out of that one. There's not many places in the Bible where demons are quoted, but I want to give you an example of a demon speaking in Acts chapter 19. Verse 15, it says this, I recognize Jesus, mind you, this is the demon speaking. I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped out on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That'll leave a memory. So we have these individuals who are carrying out these exorcisms, and the Pharisees approved of the exorcisms attempted by the sons because they're part of the establishment. They're part of the proved religion, and the Pharisees would never, ever, ever claim that what the sons are doing is satanic. And yet Jesus has actually cast out demons, and they accuse him of belonging to Satan, now, those are the kind of the details, those are the guts of the story. Zoom out for a minute. Here's the bigger issue their response is the same response as any person has who is consciously in this place of rejecting Jesus. Their response is the same response as any person who is consciously in this place of rejecting Jesus. They are not rejecting him for a lack of evidence. The evidence is right in front of them. They have to do something with the evidence. So they're not rejecting Jesus for the lack of evidence, but rather because their agenda is contrary to Jesus. If we put it in 2021 settings, we would say that's someone who's not really looking for truth, they're actually looking to justify their lifestyle. They're looking to justify their life choice. Romans 1 says the evidence is all around us. Jesus has given evidence, but people reject the evidence not because of lack of evidence, but rather simply because they want to justify their life choices. So Jesus' exclamation point on his statement to them is found in verse 27. He says, for this reason, your sons will be your judges, your disciples. For this reason, they will be your judges. Here's what he's implying by that statement. Go ahead and ask your disciples by whose power they cast out demons. And if they say that they're doing it by the power of Satan, well, they've condemned themselves. But if they say that they're doing it by the power of God, well, then they've just undercut the accusation against Jesus. Scary smart doesn't let up. Scary smart keeps going. Verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Every once in a while, I read a passage in Scripture that causes the hair on the back of my neck to stand up. And I can't tell you why, but that's one of them. The kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus could in no clearer terms declare who he is than that statement right there. See, he's saying the only remaining possibility is that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of God. And if he's doing this by the work of the Holy Spirit, then the miracles are of God. He has to be the Messiah. Because even a casual reader of the Old Testament, that's the only Bible they had at that time, even a casual reader of the Bible We come to the conclusion that this has to be the Messiah because they know all the prophecies. Let me show you two of the prophecies that these people were dialed into. Isaiah 29, on that day, meaning when the Messiah arrives, on that day the deaf will hear words of a book. Can you envision, church, having been deaf all your life? And now you can hear children laugh, and you can hear bees buzz, and words of a book. You can hear someone reading, and Isaiah says, that's going to happen on that day. On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. That's one of the prophecies. Look at another one. This comes from Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. No wonder they're saying, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? There's something bigger going on here. He's not just a worker of miracles. No wonder the scribes and the Pharisees are freaking out. Now, if you back up mentally in time, we were in the parables two years ago, and two years ago when we were in Matthew 12, we looked at just a snippet of this story with this short little parable about a strong man. Look at the parable the way Jesus explains it. In light of what you've just looked at, put this new lens on it, verse 29, or... How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Here's the image Some crooks have made a plan to enter someone's home and they're going to plunder that house. But the owner of that house, Jesus says, the dude works out every day. He's a strong man and he's packing a Glock and it's loaded. And you're going to break into his house? Unless that one is incapacitated, you have no chance of success because you're dealing with a ticked-off homeowner. I don't know about you guys, but I like watching some of the videos that are captured online of ring doorbells when crooks are caught in the act. Somebody's coming up to steal an Amazon package off the front steps or they're trying to break in and the ring doorbell captures the video of them trying to get in and all of a sudden you hear the homeowner speaking to the people and they go into, whoa, is that God mode? Where's that coming from? And then they bolt and they run. Jesus is saying, in essence, you've got someone who knows what you're doing. You're going to break into his house. You have no chance unless you're more powerful. And here's his reason for even bringing up that very short snippet. He's saying, I have demonstrated to you absolute power over Satan, who in this case is the strong man. I've validated that my power is greater than Satan. Pay attention, have I not healed people from disease? Haven't I fed them from, or freed them from demonic control? Have I not demonstrated authority over sin and death? And here's where that parable component end that we looked at two years ago, the, the deep theology of it. He's saying, who could have that kind of authority but God himself. Who but God can enter Satan's realm, successfully bind him, and carry off his property? Now, to be sure, Satan is still powerful, but he was eternally defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm glad you agree with that. So I love the old hymn that says, "'Lo, his doom is sure.'" He's still got power, but Jesus took the teeth out of the bite, if you will. His doom is sure. So then Jesus breaks into this statement in verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And he's making it very clear. There is no neutral ground when it comes to the things of Jesus. You can't be on the fence. There's no mushy gray area. You're either in or you're out, and the person who doesn't belong to Jesus, he's saying, is the enemy of God. According to Romans 5.10, it makes it very, very clear. There's only two responses to this issue. You're either with him or you're against him. And using that as the platform, he moves over into the unforgivable sin And some people read that and think, well, this just came out of left field. No, it was all based in this story that has just unfolded before you. Verse 31, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. It's my experience after many, many years of studying the Bible that what I discover every single time is always hits me face forward, is that God always deals with the real issue that's at hand. You may feel like what was just stated by Jesus came out of left field, and I'm not even sure that the people that were standing there in that moment saw it coming or even understood what he was actually saying. He's making this very declarative statement by God's own standard. He's saying, there is something that is absolute anathema. That is so great, it stands unforgiven. And that's why I say very few passages are as as misunderstood than this one. Notice, first of all, what he just said. Any sin in blasphemy will be forgiven. He broke it into two categories. Uh, Sin is sin, obviously. But in making that statement, sin, he's saying the very broad category of those things that you do on a daily basis, in and out, your immoral thought life, your actions, The things that happen in your life in a week that you respond to with a sinful attitude, that's sin in the full scope of a discovery. But then he goes down into the detail. He says, sin and blasphemy. Why break blasphemy out? Well, blasphemy is still sin, but blasphemy represents the conscious rejection of God. The deliberate, intentional defiance of openly speaking against God to the degree of actually mocking Him. And that's that word, blasphemeo. That's the last Greek word in your notes. And you can read the definition until you're blue in the face, but you really may not get what's going on here. You, You may read the Old Testament and see that people who committed blasphemy, the punishment for that was instant death. And you may read the New Testament and find in the book of Revelation that in the last days, blasphemy will increase at such a rampant degree here on planet Earth. It'll be commonplace among people to blaspheme against God. But Jesus says, even blasphemy can be forgiven just as any other sin, when it's confessed and when it's repented of, can be forgiven. An unbeliever who blasphemes God can be forgiven. Paul's a good example of that. Paul says, I was a blasphemy, formerly, blasphemer formerly in, in my former life. Look with me on the screen, 1 Timothy 1.13. Even though formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent aggressor, he goes on to say, nevertheless, I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Or Peter, Peter blasphemed Jesus the night of the arrest, and yet he was forgiven, and he was restored, and he flourished, obviously. But then Jesus goes on to say, there is an exemption though. There's an exemption to this issue. There's something that is unforgivable. Blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven, verse 31. And he doesn't stop there with double emphasis. He repeats it again in verse 32. Verse 32, Whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And that's why I said it's an eternal sin. And just bear down on that phrase, speaks a word against the Son of Man for just a moment. Like the term Son of David, Son of Man is a royal title. A royal title held in reserve by the ancient people for the one who would be in the line who would sit on the throne. A royal title. Now, when you're dealing with a sovereign, especially in the ancient world, you would not dare speak blasphemy against them. Even today in 2021, if you went into, if you had the privilege of going into the Queen's court in London and speak against her and blaspheme, blaspheme her in her presence before her court, do you think they'd let you stay in the court? Absolutely not. In the ancient world, to speak against a king in that way, they'd execute you on the spot. But Jesus says, even that one, even that one who speaks against the Son of Man, royal title, that will be forgiven that person. But blasphemy against the Spirit is much more serious. How could it be more serious than that? Because blasphemy against the Spirit not only reflects unbelief, but determined unbelief. In other words, this. Someone who has all the evidence, and they know it, and they stomp their foot and say, I refuse. It's made plain to them. They understand the explanations and defiantly say, no. So Jesus says this blasphemy, that reflects a total rejection of Jesus. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the witness to who Jesus is. When you came to Christ, you didn't come to Jesus Christ because of your own intellect, but rather because the Holy Spirit moved in your life and drew you into relationship with God. The Holy Spirit testifies to who Jesus is. So the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a rejection for someone who's standing opposed to every evidence. And so it results in the loss of opportunity to ever be forgiven. Jesus says, in the eternal ages and in the age present, Now, many respected theologians, individuals whom I respect, would say that they believe that there's a degree of this that was actually only able to be committed in the first century, only during the life of Jesus, because you have individuals who physically saw what the power of God was in Jesus, and they defiantly said, no, it cannot possibly be. But I would go on to say, These would be those who, in the face of every possible evidence, like Romans 1 speaks of, they still continue to say no. God can do nothing more for them. They remain eternally unforgiven. So balance this against what Jesus is saying. For a thief, for a murderer, for an adulterer, for anyone who's committed any egregious sin, Jesus says, that one can be forgiven. That's not unforgivable stuff. There's complete hope and forgiveness if they turn to Jesus. Just waiting for you to say amen on that one. Because it's kind of important. William Hendrickson um, wrote this in 1973. I want you to see his quote. When a man has become hardened... So that he has made up his mind not to pay attention to the Spirit, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. It's not like it's hugely insightful. Sometimes it just helps to read it. The person who stands in defiance has but one destiny. So these unbelieving Pharisees and these others who blaspheme the Spirit, they've cut themselves off, not because God's mercy wasn't offered, it was offered. They stood there as witnesses to what Jesus did, but they still permanently rejected it and they ridiculed it as being from Satan. So the writer of Hebrews poses a really good question for those of us who live in this day and age, for those who lived at the time when they didn't get to see Jesus carry out these miracles. The writer of Hebrews says, how are you going to escape if you neglect such a great salvation? What's waiting for you? You're going to turn your back on that? How are you going to escape? And the great tragedy is for them, they had the highest possible revelation from God, and they still refused to believe it. One more time, a chance for you to say amen. God is forgiving. I hope you're resolved on that. The Old Testament abounds with verses about his forgiveness. Look at me on the screen. Psalm 86, five: for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. And that's just not in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. Look with me again. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's provision for forgiveness of sin is the core of the gospel. If you take that out, you don't have the good news. So hear me on this. I don't know what you brought into the auditorium with you this morning in the way of baggage. I don't know what you have on the other side of the camera lens if you're watching from home. What kind of baggage you might be carrying with you. But hear this from the authority of God's word. No matter how severe the sin that you have committed, God can and will forgive if and I put that clause in there, and I'm going to let it hang for just a moment. If, no matter how severe the sin God can and will forgive, pause button. The worst conceivable sin that I can possibly imagine in my mind would to have been guilty of actually killing Jesus. Jesus. God the Son has put himself on display, and some individuals, a fairly small group admittedly, are responsible for physically nailing him to the cross. And yet Jesus says to those individuals, Father, would you forgive them? I can't imagine in my mind a greater sin than murdering Jesus, which tells me that the degree of your sin does not forfeit forgiveness. If you kill the Son of God and it's forgivable, how great is God's forgiveness? But let me come back to that statement. No matter how severe the sin, God can and will forgive. And I said if. Maybe I should say but. But. There is no forgiveness of even the smallest sin in your life unless it's dealt with through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I read a really interesting blog about a year ago about an individual who was not raised in church and became a follower of Jesus in his adult years, and he walked into a church service where they sang, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? Like we were just singing, right? So if you grew up in church, that song's probably pretty familiar to you, and you're like celebrating this morning. We're doing that old Southern Gospel song. But this guy who wrote this blog, he said, I was totally grossed out by that song. Like the thought of getting in a bathtub and being washed in blood, and then the next verse says, and your white robe is going to be put on you. It couldn't balance the thought in the mind until he became more mature in his walk with Christ, he was was rectifying and understanding what that song was actually communicating, that unless you deal with your sin through the shed blood of Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sin. So is there an unpardonable sin? Yes. The unpardonable sin is the final rejection of Jesus. So for a believer to fear that they have committed it, the fear is completely unfounded. If you walked in here today or you're watching from home and you think, I might have committed it, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot commit that sin. To commit that sin, you would have to consciously, deliberately, persistently reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit regarding Jesus. And if that person kept doing it up to the moment that they die, there would be no hope and no forgiveness. Because God will not forgive that rejection of Jesus. That person will have rejected the witness of the Spirit of God. So there's an eternal sin there. But I believe better things of you, you Ameners. We've come to this place where we have an understanding of what He did for us and that we are free indeed in Jesus Christ. So, on that note, We thank God for giving us clarity and understanding of the unforgivable sin, but we celebrate at the same time that all of our sins have been forgiven. Praise God for that. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these individuals who have come to you in faith through the prompting of the Holy Spirit who drew them into a relationship with you because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We are before you right at this moment as individuals who have been cleansed and made spotless by the blood of the Lamb, and we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would use this information, use this knowledge for us to be able to speak into the lives of other individuals whom we encounter who are very confused, and that would require boldness on our part, Father. So I once again pray for boldness on behalf of the people who populate New Hope Church. Make yourself powerful in our life this week. We pray for that in the majestic name of Jesus, our Savior, and soon-coming King, and all God's people said, amen. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'll be down here in front of the platform after the service. There'll be a couple individuals over in the prayer room if you need somebody to pray with you. In the meantime, have a great week, New Hope.